Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. We have a panel call today, which is really exciting. We've got uh, Jolene here. She, Jolene is a PharmD. She does a lot of stuff for the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practice. She's a board member over there. Uh, we're really lucky to have Deja here as well. Deja is a student of Jolene's, and um, and we have Jaden, who we also had on the um, on the podcast recently as well, who's doing a lot of research in benzodiazepine deprescribing guidelines and such. So, um, welcome. I think probably, you know. On my channel, we talk a lot about drug harms, you know, tapering, you know, specifically with psychiatric medications and, and a lot of patients often feel like let down, especially by everyone, you know, by the, by the doctors, but sometimes they worry about their pharmacists as well. And they say, you know, why didn't my pharmacist tell me that I shouldn't have been on Xanax for like longer than a month? Like what was going on there? They never said anything to me. And so I guess. I kind of wonder that as well. So I was wondering if you could, you know, start off by just telling us about like how informed consent really works at the, at the local community pharmacy, you know, is this a proactive thing? Is it a reactive thing? Like when does the pharmacist, you know, really go, huh, Hey, you know, Mr. Smith has been on this for a while. Let's, let's, let's sit him aside and kind of talk to him, make sure he's, you know, really should be on this med. So I'll let any of you kind of start off and sort of jump into that. Sure. So I don't mind taking a stab at that. I think that the vast majority of pharmacists are trained to intervene when possible on prescriptions that are uh, fundamentally inappropriate at their initiation or um, even with their ongoing maintenance to have those uh, patient check-ins. Um, it'll really depend on the relationship between pharmacists and patients and also the um relationships that we have with prescribers, but also the, the, the busyness within our workplace. So I, I think there is a lot of factors. It's a very loaded question and it can take us down many different avenues. Um, but I would say that the, the, the majority of my 10 years of clinical experience would be with long-term benzodiazepine use. Many of my colleagues and, and especially myself, we try to engage patients ongoingly when they are taking them long-term. Uh, it can kind of get somewhat repetitive and patients can also be somewhat um, affronted by that. So it's a, it's a matter of dealing with it delicately, uh, engaging them in a private and uh, preferable circumstance uh, in um, a, a room that is, you know, a counseling room or something like that. And even, even doing something like that when you're the only pharmacist on duty can be quite challenging when you are resource and staff constrained. Um, so it's easy, I think, in many cases, when you're literally dispensing four or 500 prescriptions a day or something like that, to be like, I'll put a note on his file, I'll try to engage him a month from now. So there's always those fundamental possibilities that things can can get missed. I think we also try to proactively get in touch with prescribers. Um, sometimes, I mean, a, a big issue is is not even including indications on prescriptions. And I think that's particularly challenging with psychotropic drugs, uh, namely because these are medications which, as, as you're, you're very well aware, have so many multiple indications. And when things are able to be faxed electronically in a secured format or digitally prescribed, um, it, it does, despite that there, there are confidentiality concerns, we are trustees, we are healthcare professionals, we want to evaluate these prescriptions so that patients are really getting the optimum care. 
But if we get a prescription for, uh, you know, a benzo, are we dealing with panic disorder? Are we dealing with social anxiety disorder? Are we dealing? So we, epilepsy, we multiple yeah, sclerosis, exactly. muscle Absolutely. spasticity, yeah. you know, the whole kind There's of range. Time. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I kind of went on a little bit long. I'll let my colleagues chime in if they. they yeah. uh, I'm interested kind of in, in, in Deja's perspective. I mean, you're in the thick mm -hmm. of this. You're in your pharmacy school at the moment. What do they teach you? You know, because I always think about like you're in school, you get kind of like the main philosophy, you know, like what like pharmacy really should be. And then you go into the real world. And then just like Jaden saying, you know, you're filling 500 scripts a day and, you know, and then you kind of meet the reality of what it's like. So what do they tell you? about uh you know informed consent uh you know in school um yeah i think it's pretty much how he said that we're taught to intervene but in class we have perfect patient cases and all the information i think like he said it's a really big issue in the community setting you don't always have access to a medical record so there might be times when a certain duration is appropriate for one thing but not necessarily for something else so you don't always know what questions to ask um and then i also think as well like patients don't always know what they don't know. So like, as he mentioned, like they, we, they trust us with their health. So a lot of times it's like, okay, they think it's safe, so it's good. So a lot of times they might not realize that there are things that they maybe should ask about. And otherwise it's like, you know, if it wasn't safe, you wouldn't be giving it to me. So I think that's just kind of where there is are some challenges involved in it. And, and I just want to add to that a little bit as far as like a first fill for a medication. I think, um, you know, in the U.S., there's that obligation to counsel on a first fill and, you know, whenever a patient would request it as well. But I think a lot of times patients actually defer that counseling. Um, there are some pharmacies, like I go to a small independent pharmacy um, and they have adequate staff. I feel like they can come over and answer questions and they actually flag all of the first fills and will say, you know, like we need to talk to you about your medication. That's something that should really be done at therapy initiation. And then as Jaden was saying, it could be hard down the line to really flag, is this appropriate use? Is this something that I need to talk to the patient about? And from a managed care standpoint as well, and, and even like looking at things at a patient or a population cohort going out a little bit further, the PDMPs do provide a lot of information as far as um, you know, potential red flags is a patient going to multiple providers for controlled substance medication is a patient, you know, um, maybe seeking early refills. Are they going to a wide geographic area of providers that maybe things are more convenient, closer to home? So there's certain things that I think the pharmacist is looking at behind the scenes, but maybe isn't always getting recognized for having acknowledged. Yeah. I think it's really, yeah. Um, you know, hearing that, that there's this kind of duty to, um, I guess, counsel, counsel patients, uh, I guess it really depends on where you go because, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll need to get antibiotics. I had asthma in the past. And so I've been to a lot of different pharmacies, but I have to say, I don't really recall ever being counseled on something. I remember kind of getting maybe like a little slip of paper. It's not even a, a fully big one. It's like this big, and it's mm -hmm. just like, you know, do you have any questions about your meds? And you just kind of tick yes. And you may not even see the, the pharmacist. You see the technician at the front desk. And then that, that's kind of it, really. Um, and I, 
and I and I imagine that that probably is the experience of of many other people. Um, um, I don't know. Has that do you do you find that? Uh, maybe not Jolene, but Deja and Jaden. Like, is is that the experience that you have when you go to pharmacies as well, or or are you getting kind of more from your colleagues? Um, I think for me, it's kind of it varies depending on the setting. So, like yeah. as Jolene mentioned, like independent pharmacy, they might have more time and, like she said, adequate staffing to actually be able to have that one on one time with people. But you know, for bigger chains and things like that, like everything is always on go. It's about you know doing everything fast. Like that's why they have drive throughs now. People don't want to get out their cars; they just want to be on the go. So I think that's definitely one of the things. So it makes it a lot easier to have technicians there. So I definitely think like a lot of times people interact with technicians and maybe not even necessarily the pharmacist yet. And they may not even know, like, you know, I know every time I go to a pharmacy counter and this is something that's, you know, codified into law that you have to, you know, the someone gives you the opportunity. Do you, would you like to speak to a pharmacist? So that may be said to a patient, but then they may say no. If you're at a slower location, oftentimes, especially an independent pharmacy, they would acknowledge the patient regardless because there's a greater likelihood that the pharmacist is within earshot and can come right over and say hey i noticed mr or mr mrs smith you haven't had this prescription before um so i think there's different levels of service that you would get associated with the counseling and i mean some of these things are pretty complicated right like i get that you know, some so someone might get on a benzodiazepine, and then you know, maybe one of the side effects is um, feeling sedated or something like that. That's like a direct side effect that's already happening, and they're just like, "Hey, do you have any questions about it?" And if they're having that side effect, or or sometimes it makes people irritable. That's like a paradoxical effect. They could say, "Well, I think this is making me more irritable," but you know, one of the worst things that can happen with these medic medications, probably the worst thing is, is the risk of physical dependence over time, you know, and you're not going to, that's not going to be flagged on the PDMP because this is not like an addiction issue. So there's no flagging there. Um, but, you know, to counsel someone about the dependence on benzodiazepines and, you know, how to taper and how to come off and, hey, you should talk to your doctor, That that's really time consuming. I mean, so we're talking about a pharmacist maybe, well, I don't know, five minutes or something like that, but it adds up if you're doing it, you're doing it a lot. So, I mean, doctors, we're definitely not perfect. I mean, we don't give informed consent to people either. And I, I kind of think about how I see that happen happening. And it's just something that kind of just drops off, you know, this, this thing. And I wonder if there's kind of this attitude in the background where it's like, well, they're seeing a physician, you know, the physician prescribed it. It's probably being monitored responsibly. You know, this is probably not really even you know, my place to do so. It's like almost like there's a safety net. Yeah. And I think that that was definitely an older school mentality. Um, what you just expressed there that, uh, you know, oh, well, I'm not going to get involved. The physician kind of knows what they're doing and I'm not going to question. And there's still a pushback from physicians when pharmacists do engage. So that's something that I think is becoming um, less frequent of a problem as I've, you know, I guess come along in my pharmacy career in the past 20 years, some of the newer providers don't have that knee-jerk ref reflex, like, why are you questioning me kind of um, mentality. So I feel like 
how we're getting along, you know, we're having this conversation today and clearly we're a little bit of a younger age cohort here. I think that that that's changing and it is improving over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would agree with Julene on that. I, I do think that there is um, more of a paradigm, especially in, in Canada, I, I can speak to that being the, the only Canadian on the panel that there's, there has been uh, a push towards more interprofessional teamwork within healthcare. Uh, and I think that the, the patients really value that and they are ultimately getting superior care when communication is more seamless, interprofessional, and that there is kind of engagement and, and shared decision from all parties um, and engaging kind of an informed consent. Like I, I have a very unique type of practice and it's different than the retail practice that I've been quite used to for the past 10 years. Um, but pharmacists are, are increasingly, I think, fitting and finding these niche roles within interprofessional primary care teams and within um, specialty care settings. And in the United States, you have board certifications for so many different types of specialties within pharmacy, including psychiatric pharmacy. So I think that there's a lot of progressivism um, and that can be quite positive when all, all people work effectively together on behalf of the patient. Yeah. And I think that's also an educational component to that as well, because what I see now within the education system specifically is more of a push to go into one of these specialty areas of practice. Um, That's a whole other, I guess, can Mm -hmm. of worms. But, you know, when I was coming out of pharmacy school, I guess the gold standard was to be this generalist versus this specialist. Now the the move is really towards getting your niche role. And is, is that because community pharmacy is seen as kind of pretty bleak? Like when I whenever when I was working in the pharmaceutical companies, you know, I'd work with a lot of pharmacists and they're like, oh, I could never work in community pharmacy. I had to get out, you know, I don't know if that's been like you know, this, the general vibe that kind of pushes people out of wanting to do, I mean, that, that's kind of a community pharmacy. It's like the family practice of medicine equivalent. I mean, you, you're there on the front lines, educating patients, but like, and this is probably a skewed population because I'm talking a pharma pharmacist, but like, is that kind of how people would talk about it in in school or how people talk about it now? I don't know, maybe Deja, you could comment on, on what you hear your colleagues saying. Yeah, I think so. I definitely have heard some of the sentiment in terms of like some people wanting to get out of community. But I also think something we're learning about now is that pharmacists scope of practice is expanding over time because people are realizing what can be offered. So that's opening up opportunities for pharmacists to move into different areas. So I think that's really a lot of what it is, is that now you can do more in other areas as well. And you can put your education fully to use and use all the things that you learn and, you know, manage patients directly, like just things like that. So I think that's definitely like what I notice a lot, like what they talk about in class, my classmates are saying, like, they really want to be more hands-on with patients and have access to like their full information like that. So I think that's really kind of what some of the pushes to move into like specialty areas. And I mean- and the, I will say the burnout within retail pharmacy is real. That's a topic, you know, I'm obviously in some, you know, Facebook groups for pharmacists and then the local, you know, chapters of like 8PHA. And I think that many pharmacists within the retail setting are facing this burnout. And honestly, 
I mean, it can be seen across healthcare. COVID kind of pushed the healthcare system over the edge in many ways. Um, so that this is just another, I guess, sequela of that. And I think in pharmacy practice as well, and I don't know about, you know, how physicians, but like the corporatization of pharmacy practice has really dumbed down the profession when people are going and expecting, you know, a pharmacist, one pharmacist to fill 500 prescriptions a day. That is, in my book, a recipe for disaster. I think the I, I same thing is happening yeah. in medicine. But yeah, sorry, Dad, didn't go. Please weigh in. Yeah, no, I, I was what I what I was going to say, Doctor Woodering, is your your observation of um, kind of community pharmacy being the the generalist of our profession, the same way that family medicine is. I think is quite spot on, and I think that that is where you will see the bulk of the burnout within the professions for primary care. And it's not to say that it doesn't exist within the specialties because it absolutely does as well. And it's not to victimize one group over the other, but within most of the employed pharmacists are within the retail sector of our, and you're in many cases, what Julian had mentioned when you are um, beholden to kind of two masters, both the patient and your um you know, the corporatism, the the ethos of the company and the metrics and various things that are kind of constraining you within your workplace. So I can give you a personal example from uh, a couple of years ago, but, um, you know, doing 40 COVID vaccinations a day, um, I'm sure that there's people that do more per day, but, and then engaging in patient counseling that took 10 minutes, I was told that I shouldn't spend so much time with patients that I need to step back and get some prescriptions checked. And I thought that using my professional judgment and autonomy as a professional, that that person, that particular situation warranted 10 minutes based on this individual's health literacy, the severity of, of the, the medication, the potential drug interactions, that this um, did, it, did require a little bit more time. Um, but that's only one scenario that pharmacists encounter Similar Wait, so, so did, was this another pharmacist or was this like an administrator? This, this was a this was a manager that just happened to be in at the time during during the the shift and during the day and um, was kind of cracking the whip, so to speak. Yeah. So when, uh, but, yeah, you know, when you talk about the corporatization and I mean, what would you know? This is all like, I mean, it's big business stuff. It's like, how can we make this more efficient? You know, how can we really, you know, maximize? Um, I guess maybe the activities that, that you know, that, that are profitable or, or maybe they're just regulations, mm. you know, these are the laws and we need to make sure that we're as, you know, efficient as possible while only doing those things. And then, so like, I guess the attention of the professional is only focused on those areas where there's actually measurement or consequences, but yeah. it seems like um, counseling patients didn't really make it into that equation very much because, you know, when I see that, become a production line thing it's like we're going to hand them a piece of paper and then they're just going to kind of like tick yes and then you know yeah. that that part's checked off um and so yeah i mean that's I, I mean it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that there's burnout because the equivalent in say family medicine would be like you go in to see the doctor and you know oh, I need to make sure everyone is on a statin if they've, you know, so I need to go and look look at their like lipid levels if they're on this, you know, this is my quality metric. I need to do that. And so, because otherwise I'm going to keep on getting this little blinking thing in my electronic health record saying, oh, you know, the 
triglycerides and cholesterol at this level, you know, why aren't they on, on a statin? And then there's, you know, there's the paperwork that patients send them. There's, oh, they've got a HAMD score. This is your depression screening score or PHQ-9. It's at this level. We need to make sure they get an antidepressant. So there's all these like kind of subtle ways, like these mm -hmm. quality metrics kind of sneak in and end up like hijacking the business and, you know, it gets to the point where, you know, they don't, they don't even counsel the patient on, you know, all, all of, all of the drugs because they have these 15 minute visits. So I, I see a lot of parallels between the two. And, and I, I imagine pharmacists go in to this profession probably because they love drugs and the knowledge of drugs and they want to use it to help people. And you end up in this uh, kind of assembly line situation. You're just like, wait, hang on a second. You know, this is not what I signed up for. That's certainly that's how I felt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's Sorry, a good, that's a good description. That's a good broad description. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I noticed at the FDA, cause I was a big drug safety guy um, and, and people were like, you know, how come the FDA doesn't know about all these things, but just like any other kind of thing, like the FDA became a production line and it was dictated by um, the, Gosh, I can't remember the name of it. It was a piece of, con you know, piece of legislation that passed through Congress. I think it was called FDAR, and it the uh, pharmaceutical companies they ended up giving a lot of money to the FDA, but they had these metrics. It was if we submit a new protocol to you guys for a new IND, you need to do it in 30 days. If we submit a new drug application to get a drug on the market, you got to do it in nine months. And so, I mean, it's like the whole culture of the place changed because in my small team of like 15 people looking at the psychiatric drugs in the US, that was all that anyone ever bugged us about. You know, when are you going to get this like protocol review done? You know, when are you going to review this NDA? We got to get it in on time. We had all these meetings about it, but, you know, we would have citizens petitions about like PSSD and like, you know, all these horrific drug side effects just kind of sitting on the back burner there for like years at a time because they weren't really like, you know, there wasn't a piece of legislation saying, hey, every citizen's petition has to be reviewed in 30 days. You know, any serious side effect needs to do that. And so it's just, it's so interesting how laws and things that people get measured on really can kind of skew the focus of of different things and, you know, kind of pull it away from, maybe it's, uh, you know, the, the noble mission of it originally, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, don't think that... anyone goes into healthcare thinking that that will be the outcome. <laughs> but unfortunately, that big business piece of it and the ability to monetize and what is paid for and what is not is often the dictator. Yeah. Yeah. And what you were just describing with um, the, the competing priorities at the FDA and what seems like the more nobler, perhaps, goals of, of reviewing evidence being subverted by what it seems to be maybe more industry in, in, in interests or industry influences really reminds me of um, a, a great book by a, a Canadian emergency physician and public health researcher by Joel Lexton called um, Private Profits versus Public Policy. And it kind of describes the same phenomena with Health Canada in in Canada with this kind of clientele pluralism, this idea that essentially pharmaceutical companies and the regulator are very much uh, codependent upon each other. And that mm -hmm. codependence actually comes at the expense of the, the public that both 
major entities are, are supposedly there to work within the best interests of. That it's, makes sense. It, it's so subtle because like you could hear that on face. Oh yeah. You know, industry is giving FDA all this money and all they want to know is like, we just need these things done on time because it's important for how I run up, how we run our business. That actually doesn't sound like that evil or anything when you hear about no, it. Obviously no. you guys are businesses, you got to get things done, but, and then you, but then you just see how it kind of mm -hmm. things that don't have to do with that, that aren't being measured, they just get ignored. Um, and it is so many of these like subtle ways, you know, the, things get subverted so that's i'll probably Absolutely. i'm gonna i'm gonna have to read that private profits versus public policy thing i think that could be really it, uh, it is a very right good up, read. right up my alley you know yeah. yeah um well i'm gonna kind of pivot and start talking to you guys about you know side effects of of, of drugs and things like that and get um get your perspective on that so let's start with benzodiazepines a lot of my audience are really into that. And I know you guys are really into it as well. What do pharmacists learn about the risks of benzos, you know, going through their, their training? Maybe this is good for Deja, actually. You, you could kind of, you're, you're right there sort of in the trenches now. Yeah. So yeah. we kind of talk more about like some of the immediate short-term things. Um, and even like, you know, certain things like, okay, if you're taking it for a certain amount of time, like you don't want to just stop abruptly because there's like risk of seizures, like things like that, like don't mix it with these medications or like, you know, you shouldn't drink it with alcohol, kind of those things like that. But we don't really discuss too much the long-term effects. We talk about how it's, it shouldn't be used long-term, but not necessarily always why. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's not really always too much detail. And I think it's because there is so much to cover that sometimes there's not always that time to really dive so much into one class of medications. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, another thing is like, like I get it, you know, when you're in school, like you don't have enough time to know every single side effect of every single drug. I mean, we're talking about like over a thousand different commonly used medications. So the, um, you know, the thing that was really surprising about my education was that I was never taught how to find a drug label. You know, and this was in medical school and in residency. So I never knew how to look up, you know, the the most up-to-date drug label that had the side effects of the drug. No one ever told me what the sections in the label were, you know, where are the important risks? Where's the patient counseling information? You know, all of these things. It was only when I, you know, I went to the FDA and was writing these things. I was like, oh, here they are. So my question to you is, do you get taught how to find drug labels uh, in school? Like the most up-to-date yeah. ones? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we definitely do. And like, that's a big emphasis in terms of like knowing that things are going to change over time and having the skills to do the research on our own. Because a lot of times when we do talk about side effects, like it's the very like big for sure things. Like for example, like with ACEs and ARBs, like angioedema. So like those are things that are pounded into our heads. So like with other medication classes, it's like, okay, there's other things that exist, but we're going to teach you the big things, the other stuff, you know how to look up. And where do they tell you to find it? Um, a lot of times it is like things like package inserts, um, like Lexicomp and Micromedics are really huge resources that we're taught about as well. Okay. And Lexicomp and Micromedics, are these, what, what are those resources? Is this just like an aggregating thing of, of labels? 
So yeah. pretty much, yeah, it goes through like uses, indication, dosing, dose adjustments. You can analyze drug interactions, pretty much like everything you need to know for a specific medication. You can just search it and then you'll find it there. And it is it is written by, to some extent, overseen by editors and, and clinical editors that work for the, the company. I think it's Walter Skluwer, maybe same as up to date, I believe. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but... But I mean, these things, they, they do get updated there. I guess they're clinical information resources. There's there's an acronym for them. I don't know it off the top of my head. And they are but, generally pharmacists who are in those roles, those yeah. drug information roles. Um, you know, I've seen job postings for, you know, mm -hmm. micromedics and stuff. Um, so, and I think that one is Meritive, actually, it used to be IBM that owned them. So, yeah, it's definitely something that pharmacists are taking an integral and an important role in getting the most up-to-date information. But they're also referencing, in large part, um, you know, clinical da published data. So if yeah. there are articles right. regarding different side effects, that's what they would use as a resource. Um, the package information, um, reported side effects from, you know, um, FDA, if they have an adverse, you know, side effect that's reported. So I think they're using a lot of different sources there to aggregate that information i'm really curious and i'm just do, do do any of you have micromedics handy like on your computers like within a moment i do um, not yeah. i mean i can pull it up it's not it's not the it's not my personal go-to one and that could just be um from the Canadian culture of clinicians that i i work with and such but uh, i think i can access it if you you're interested yeah could you see if they have protracted withdrawal listed as a side effect of xanax because this is a recent one from 2020 i guess i'd i would just want to know how frequently it's it's in there because that would be really mm -hmm. I, um yeah because i mean that that's such a big deal for my audience and just to i mean that yeah. would be a, a real vote of confidence if like right after 2020 that was already in there if that's a primary resource for people um so and... I'll I'll compromise with you because I don't have micromedics, but I do have up to date, which is connected with Lexicomp. Um, you yeah, maybe just yeah have have a look at that, and I'll I'll sure. I guess the other thing I'm going to ask Deja did did you ever learn how to um find drug labels directly from the source? You know from from uh from FDA and then and where you go to to download those. Um, so we weren't necessarily taught where exactly to go. Um, we have been taught like to go to manufacturer websites and things like that, or like, even if it's certain things, like, as it was mentioned, like sometimes like Lexicomp does have those like links to certain studies and resources. Sometimes they will have the package inserts there as well. So that's kind of what we've been taught. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is like something I'm really passionate about. So I'm going to kind of just pull it up right now. So this is the place you go. If you are in the United States and you want to know the most up-to-date label for a drug. It's a website called dailymed.com. It's government-run. Mm -hmm. And you could just put in, like, say, we're going to look at um, maybe clonopin, you know? And you can kind of click right on it. And then you can you can open up, you know, the the most up-to-date drug label. It's it's right there. And you could see it for all of it. 
you know, all the different things and, you know, you can kind of, and so this is what I'd be interested in knowing is because, you know, if, 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 if something like Micromedx or Lexicomp or up to date, like those things, they might not, I don't know if they get updated every year with this new information, but you know, there's, there's really serious side effects that, that get dropped in here, for instance, like, let's have a look. Yeah, protracted withdrawal syndrome is now is now mm. in here, and then it kind of links to the respective section where, and and this is the thing that I guess, you know, this really, this there should really be no excuse for people not to be warned about this now because, um, it's it's right here in the label and it's actually linked up in let's say. So here we go. So it's in in section five, which is warnings and precautions. So this is the section for the most important risks of a drug. Um, these are the risks that pretty much everyone should be informed about from from their physician. You know, you should always tell them what's in warnings and precautions. But and so now we've got it in there. You know, protracted withdrawal syndrome, and it links down there, and it and it fully describes this. And so and it actually describes it reasonably well in a brief in a brief paragraph. It does a good job. Um, you know, talking about the symptoms and the fact that it can last for more than 12 months. And so I'm going to pull off that now, but I'm still seeing people who have been started on benzodiazepine since, you know, you know, late 2020 who now have protracted withdrawal and have never heard about it. And so it's this, it ends up being this thing where there's no, um, you know, it gets, it got, gets kind of buried in the label somewhere where people don't know how to find doctors don't know how to find it. I didn't know how to find it until I worked at the FDA. It sounds like maybe, you know, that's not being taught in, in pharmacy school either. Um, and um, yeah, I, there's, there's just this big gap between, you know, the information and how do we, how do we get it to patients and how do we even get it to physicians? It, it's, it's mind blowing for me, but, but I see it with a lot of these risks. Yeah. I will say so, one yeah. very useful thing. So I know yeah. specifically on Lexicon, cause I prefer that over micromedics, they do yeah. tell you when everything is last updated. So every time they update it, they put a date on when the information was yeah. last mm -hmm. So, yeah. so on the, the search that I just did on protracted withdrawal for up to date, um, now up to date is is more of like a, a point of care decision resource. So it 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 integrates with drug monographs the way that Lexicomp and Micromedics may, but it it is also a high level overview of clinical decision making information. So guideline based clinical pearls, things of that nature. So when I type in protracted withdrawal, I get. I don't get a specific article on that, but I get a number of articles and, and sure enough, benzodiazepine poisoning, poisoning and withdrawal is about the sixth one down and it is up to date as of June of this year. So okay. they, they, they do a pretty good job, I think, but, um, could you definitely, search yeah, SSRI sexual dysfunction and see, yeah. see if that's in yeah. there as well. Yeah. I would expect that would probably have an actual, um, yeah. I would hope that that would actually have a, an article of its own. Yeah. And one other thing that I just want to say about some of these resources is they are paid resources like Micromedics and Lexicomp. They are not free resources, so they're not something that the general public would necessarily have yes, access to. And they true. are quite costly. So that's kind of the cost of doing business if you're working in pharmacy practice that you would have <clears> access <throat> to these information databases because you will need them. Um, so I just want to put that out there in case your patients are going to these resources and trying to gain access yes, to them. Yes, that is, that is critical to point out. And I, I appreciate Julian doing that. 
The other thing just to bear in mind is that they are often written at um, a, a level that is perhaps a, above the, the the general health education of most patients. Like they are designed to be written for a clinical audience and not a patient audience. Mm-hmm. So I think that if, if they were to encounter something like this without the skills and training to properly interpret it, and uh, some patients certainly can, but making it widely available, I think would would generate more public confusion and potential um, exaggerated responses and concerns. Uh, so a lot of this information is available relatively accurately from other sources, but that's why it is always best to talk to your healthcare provider. Well, let me ask you, Jolene, do, because, you know, what Jaden says, right, you know, that stuff is written for a clinical audience, but usually uh, the package inserts, they have, they have, it's, it's written at an eight, eighth grade level, at least uh, the section of it called patient counseling information in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, does that only have to go out on the initial prescription? Like, does that ha- is is there a law in the U.S. that every initial prescription must come with that information? Yeah. So you're going to get your patient leaflet information generally yeah. with every prescription, even the subsequent refills, um, and that's codified by the state. Oh, so-, so even for subsequent refills, that's that that's they should get the patient counseling information. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess some of what the Alliance pushes for is to have this more detailed patient information, um, explaining protracted, um, withdrawal symptoms a little bit better, but, um, I guess there are pushes around that when you think about things like NSAIDs, they have specific patient leaflets that need to go out besides the actual, you know, patient um, provider information that you would get. There's additional leaflets associated with certain drug classes. And at the Alliance, that's one of the things that we would like to see is more information given out with benzodiazepines, whether it be for informed consent, whether it be for protracted withdrawal symptoms, there's a lot that can be done. You know, the interesting thing is that we give, you know, this gets out, this this is going out at least with the initial or or the subsequent ones. It's more information than anyone would ever want to know. I mean, these things, they could be like, you know, six or seven pages long of but describing all of the risks. So everyone who gets a benzodiazepine script has this piece of paper that talks about protracted withdrawal states that can last for 12 months or longer, which just sound horrifying when you look in the label, you know, the things in there. Yeah. But we're also conditioned in a way that it's like to think, oh, you know, my doctor or my pharmacist, they would have told me if there was something relevant for me, you know? And so I don't really need to kind of look at this and kind of newsflash for, you know, people who may be watching this, that's changed now. You know, if, if you go into a CVS and, and the pharmacist is filling 500 scripts a day or something like that, it's not likely that that's going to happen, that they're going to have to say, oh, you know, is it, well, first, they may not even know you because they're seeing so many people and then they're going to talk to you about it. That's the same with like community, men- like uh, family medicine clinics. I mean, this is churn and burn, you know, every 15 minutes, like, um, and so... I mean, we've gone to a place where I guess the patient really has to read the leaflet now. It's not like it used to be where maybe you would expect that level of, um, you know, care. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think think you can still receive that depending on where you're getting your prescriptions filled again. Um, The very, and I don't, 
need to besmirch corporate pharmacy settings. I've worked for corporate pharmacy settings, but the service level that I get where I prefer to go is that independent pharmacy where they actually know who I am and what I'm getting. And they will come over and counsel on every new prescription that's flagged. They come over and they talk to me. So I think that, you know, if you're not getting that level of service, so for your patients out there that are not getting that, they should look for the services elsewhere. That would be what I would encourage them to do. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I echo that. And and one thought that occurred to me when you were talking about all of these leaflets and and all of these papers going into prescription bags, hundreds of them, uh, you know, in Canada, I doubt that that happens as much as it perhaps should. Uh, when we look at things from an information or an implementation science and kind of best practices perspective for behavior change within that literature, we know that simple information dissemination is kind of the least effective when it comes to engaging patients and actually changing behaviors. So in Canada, we have like a, a federal mandate with opioids. So we always include like a Health Canada opioid leaflet. Those things get thrown out probably 99% of the time, unfortunately. It doesn't mean that we engage. It doesn't mean that it's not necessarily worth to try and, and include those things. But it's kind of like what comes to mind for me is like the fine print on um, digital information collecting when you sign up for an app, right? Like people click the checkbox and then they click continue because they want to they start the app. They want to start their medication and get well. And they do put a lot of trust in, in providers. And it is up, more up to us to be familiarized with that fine print and really engage when when and whenever, wherever and whenever possible, as much as we can. I, f I feel like there's a business here for anyone who wants to pursue this. It's like get a QR code, you know, business, you stick it on the top of the, the bottle and it says, watch me before taking. And, you know, it's not some dry leaflet. It's actually something with some production quality. Three minutes, you know, here's what yeah. you need to know about benzodiazepines. Just stick it like right there and you know, sell it to, um, I don't know, your, your big pharmacy chains as a risk mitigation thing. I think that would actually be helpful because no one reads those leaflets. I mean, it's just too dense. They don't even, like before you even get to the stuff that's like relevant to you, it's like halfway down, you know, it, it's like kind of buried yeah. in the middle of the thing. Yeah. 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 Um, Jaden, before I, I forget... I Go I'm just thinking go. because I, I swear the pharmacy that I use, which is honestly, um, they only have like two locations here in my hometown, but I, I did see something that was associated with my cholesterol medicine that was like a little production level video. So I think that is out there as yes. far as, yeah, yeah. Them. And that would, yeah, because we're in the TikTok generation, you know, it just, you know, we need, we are, we, we, we need this in my, maybe like less than 30 seconds if you can. In 30 seconds, this is what you need to know. <laughs> and then yeah. there's like a link to get the three minute version and then a link to get the 30 minute version if you want, you know, all, all like patient, patient led, uh, sorry, like uh, at a, uh, you know, lay language, not clinical language, but really simple for non medical folks to understand. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Or a jingle. Everybody knows what Pepto-Bismol is used for because the song gets stuck in their head. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
like ce celebrities doing it as well you know there's a whole bunch of things you could do to make it engaging you know <laughs> yeah um Jaden, did you ever see was there anything about pssd and up to date or is it still kind of uh yeah there? no i did i did search and there there is uh, a specific article on okay called sexual dysfunction caused by selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors so it is okay. yeah maybe it, in there quite specific Okay. That is something we actually do commonly talk about when we do talk about SSRIs and like oh, meds for, you know, use for and that's one of the leading counseling points um, from a retail pharmacist perspective. I think a lot of patients want to hear that information before they start taking a drug. 100%. I think it makes it different too, because a lot of times, like especially long term, I think people like that's something people will notice if it changes, but like over time, if people are noticing that, you know, their brain's a little bit foggy, like things like that, their, their memory isn't as good as it used to be, especially if they were on a medication for so long, they might not attribute it to the fact that, you know, this happened down the line. So they might not even mention it to like um, their pharmacist, their provider to ask about it, but something like a sexual side effect, people are going to be like, what's going on? So I think that's definitely one of the issues as well. That's interesting. Um, well, there's sexual there. I mean, there's sexual dysfunction on the antidepressants and then there's permanent sexual dysfunction that doesn't get better. And, and Deja, you probably may not know about this because it's not recognized in the U S yet, but it is recognized where Jaden's from, you know, and this is now, I think in all the drug labels there. So I wonder if that will end up being, Oh, if you take this medication, you could have sexual side effects. And Oh, by the way, you know, in a proportion of people, we don't know the incidence. It may not go away, but I mean, that's what you'd really want to see now, at least in places like Canada and Europe, where the, the national um, regulators have recognized it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a whole nother can of worms why in the US where one in 10 people take these medications that we're not uh, telling them that. Yeah, um, a lot of times we mostly just talk about that it'll go away when you stop taking it, but we don't talk about, you know, the people that can experience things permanently. Gosh, and isn't that a whole lot less scary, you know? Than, <laughs> yeah. Um, so another thing is, you know, specifically related to benzodiazepines, I already, I'm, I'm going to imagine the answer is, well, I'm, I'm not going to assume everything. What, what do you get told about tapering people off psychiatric medications in, in pharmacy school? Straight for oh. Deja, actually, yeah. <laughs> We are told not to abruptly discontinue, but we are yeah. not told how to go about that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's very important because it's like, I mean, you can taper some things off over months or it can be over a couple of days. So I think that's really important information that's left out. So it's like, we know that we need to look out for this. So, but how do we approach it when we actually have patients that we need to take care of? Yeah, I, I, I've learned, um, and I recall that we did cover this in fairly extensive detail in our undergraduate training that... Um, we, we look at the pharmacokinetics of, of the different drugs, uh, both between classes and within the classes to kind of determine the tape, the, the appropriate tapering rates based on those theoretical considerations. Like we certainly wouldn't taper, um, fluoxetine, for example, the same we would as, as we would taper peroxetine. Um, and it, it is the same with benzodiazepines. It's the same with, with other psychotropic classes, um, antipsychotics and, and things. So I think it you get far more focus, I believe, predominantly on the benzodiazepines and the SSRIs. I don't think they necessarily cover 
to the same extent the tapering considerations for other classes of psychotropics. Um, and that could be to some extent because of more scarcity of information, at least at that time in my training. Um, but they, they, do, they do cover how to do it incrementally uh, in a gradual and appropriate fashion, but also um, how it'll vary depending on the circumstances, right? In terms of if we're doing a, a cross taper and titration, or if the person is kind of in an inpatient facility or more clinically unstable, and then we can potentially do things a little bit more rapidly compared to an outpatient setting with monitoring. Um, so we, we cover those things fairly, I, I would say fairly extensively, uh, certainly not to the level that um, the four of us have likely developed an expertise and, and competence in, but your average pharmacist should should know these things quite well, very well. Well, well I think also there is some, I guess, discrepancy in doing things in a linear taper version mm -hmm. versus the reverse hyperbolic taper. So yeah. that that's still something that, you know, there's a lot of literature that would support the reverse hyperbolic taper versus a linear taper. We know that benzos um, really the linear taper isn't as efficacious for people. Um, that's kind of in the presentation that I had sent to you, Yosef. So those kind of things, I think those little details are things that maybe pharmacists pick up, not in school, but in clinical practice and their own research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you like, I, I imagine you, it would have to be that way because, uh, you know, that really like the source of the most important information for prescribers should be in the drug label. And from my recollection of looking at these, these drugs, they, let me see what they say about how to discontinue. Um, let's see. All they say is a gradual reduction in the dose rather than abrupt cessation is recommended when, whenever possible. Okay, if intolerable symptoms occur, the physician may continue decreasing the dose, but at a more gradual rate. So super duper high level, you know, they do, you know, it does make some space for, I guess, potentially like a hyperbolic style taper if someone is saying they're having intolerable symptoms, you know, you keep on reducing at a, at a lower rate. So that was Lexapro's label. At least it's in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, you guys, I mean, you you really were enjoyable to talk to and, that, and you covered all of the points I wanted to speak about. Do you guys have anything else that kind of came to mind while we were talking, which you, which you want to uh, bring up? Uh, there, there was one thing that um, I, I don't know if we touched upon, but uh, in coordinating the, the, the conversation um, was mentioned, and that's the, the role of maybe compounding pharmacies and, and things of that nature when we employ the possibility of drug tapers and things like that, I would say that by and large uh, compounding pharmacies are quite rigorous in the, the way that they prepare things, the standards that they need to abide by. Um, so if, if people are extremely sensitive near the ends of say hyperbolic tapers or things where they require these micro reductions in doses that are not otherwise apparent through solid oral dosage forms, um, compounding pharmacies can potentially fill that niche and fill that gap and do it in a way that is uh, standardized and safe for patients. Um, 
but it'll it'll depend on the availability of those kind of services in a person's vicinity. Uh, they're certainly more rare than than kind of your average retail pharmacy. Uh, when we get into the more highly specialized and um, higher grade kind of compounding. So I'm not a compounding pharmacist. I know many compounding pharmacists and they uh, are amazing. They're excellent. And some of them create products that they distribute to other pharmacies to then provide to their patients, um, whether it be for you know, topical products for pain or uh, specialized compounds that are evidence-based for hemorrhoids, you, you name it. You can name a condition and you can probably find a specialized compound that, or a compounding pharmacy that can assist. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, depending on where a patient lives, though, that may not be a service that is yes, close yes. by. So yeah. though, I know when I lived in more metropolitan areas, that was services that maybe I could find a little bit easier than where I am currently in a rural area close to the Adirondacks. So I think that that will be very dependent on where the patient's regional availability is. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if you guys know this, but, you know, CVS can ship meds right to your house, you know, and, and some companies can do that as well. Uh, is there any equivalent for like, like compounding pharmacists? Like if someone wants to do, I don't know if there's a compounding pharmacy that, you know, covers the West Coast or the East Coast or something like that. Is that a possibility for some people who want compounding pharmacies, but then they, you know, maybe they live in the boonies? Yeah, there there are larger scale compounding pharmacies. I mean, I don't know any off the top of my head. I know that I was familiar with seeing them when I lived in Maryland and New Jersey, um, you know, closer to metropolitan areas, but there are pharmacies that do provide services. Um, depending on where the patient lives, they would have to find one that would ship to the state in which they reside because they would have to have, you know, the authorization to do so. They would have to have their pharmacy licensure in that state. Okay. Well, good. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and um and and stop stop the recording now. But thank you all for uh, such a excellent discussion. Thank it's been you. a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WitDuringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.